On today's episode, I speak with Mike Newman, who is the CEO of a packaging company called Returnity. Returnity Innovations is the pioneer in the elimination of single-use shipping packaging. Returnity builds out solutions and empowers the systems necessary for companies to shift to new circular economies. And they've done quite a job of that, working with some of the biggest e-commerce brands in the world to create solutions to reduce the amount of cardboard packaging required. I don't know about you, but as I turn to e-commerce for more and more of my uh, shopping needs, I just get a huge inflow of cardboard that needs to be dealt with. And I just think it's such a waste. So Returnity is solving that problem for consumers e-commerce platforms, and the couriers all at the same time. Returnity has been partners with the company ThreadUp and Rent the Runways, two huge e-commerce brands right since the beginning of the company's inception. And they've worked in parallel to develop solutions that suit the needs of those e-commerce giants. One thing that Mike talks about that I found really interesting that I think a lot of you will gain value from is If you're going to build a circular company, how do you embed it within existing systems that already work? So in the case of packaging, they need to interface with both the end consumer, being you or me at the front door, receiving the package and having that package experience. But then I also need to work with the logistics companies and the couriers who are actually handling that package. And so if you design a a box, as an example, that doesn't follow the the courier's specifications, you might get penalized for it. And that that penalty might lead to your business model no longer being uh, profitable. So a really interesting conversation with Mike. He gave a whole lot of great tips for anyone who is an entrepreneur, is starting a business, or someone who just wants to know more about how the supply chain works. Uh, really interesting, and they're doing some really amazing stuff with some some big-name companies. So look out for Returnity as they continue to grow. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Mike Newman. All right, we're recording. All right, Mike, thanks so much for joining me and uh, tuning in from New York. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great. Um, So I want to get right into kind of the nitty gritty of what you're currently working on and what Returnity, what problem Returnity is solving. Yeah, I mean, I, I say Returnity is the best cocktail party company I've ever been a part of because whenever we talk to them about what we're working on, people get really excited because they're very tired of, uh, number of boxes that break down from all their uh, online orders. Um, so that's really our mission is to replace single-use shipping and delivery packaging, which, you know, cardboard boxes and poly mailers, with something reusable and more sustainable. Uh, and so that's the, a huge uh, and growing market for shipping, uh, you know, their shopping habits online. And uh, that's our mission is to find a way to get rid of all that single-use cardboard and plastic bags. Yeah, it, it is. I've where I live right now. We don't we have curbside recycling, but it's not that great. And so I typically have to go do it myself. And I'm breaking down boxes all the time. So <laughs> it's definitely yeah, a problem for me. It's you know, I mean that obviously. I think that people appreciate that that is sort of a uh, it's an annoyance, but not much more than that. But it's also a really very tangible sort of representation of the sustainability impact 
of what this uh, type of consumption <laughs> creates. And so it's part of the annoyance of having to break it down and find a place to store it and then get it recycled if you if you have access to that. But it's more this just sort of like daily reminder that, boy, there's just all this waste that I'm creating. And that creates a sort of sense of frustration. And so it's also an opportunity for us. You know, that frustration reflects what consumers and then also companies that they want, which is to create more sustainable systems. And so it's it's good to have something that's so easily sort of appreciated. It makes, it makes the, like that initial sort of pitch process that much easier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll get more into that, but I want to hear a little bit more about your background and how you were introduced to the concept of the circular economy, whether that's something that's been on your mind for a while or is, or where that kind of came from. Yeah, I started, I mean, I've always been focused on, on sort of the environment and policy. I, you know, that was my undergraduate degree. And um, even as a kid, like I just being outdoors and spending a lot of time um, active in that uh, environment and just being you know, really focused on that from a young age. But I, my initial way of uh, applying that was to go to, to DC and work for in government. And then, and then most, uh, most of my time there for five years with the Sierra club, the big uh, environmental policy grassroots organization. And so that gave me a really good grounding in policy and government and consumer action. And also a really uh, good frustration around how at the time, uh, particularly companies were an impediment towards progress on environmental policy. So after five years of that sort of uh, banging my head against the wall and seeing us getting our butts kicked by big corporations that weren't necessarily um, favorable towards environmental policies, um, I decided to take an off-ramp, learn from, learn from the enemy, so to speak, uh, get an MBA and figure out how to use the, biz- the power of business to, to make uh, progress on, on sustainability goals rather than constantly fighting from the outside. And, uh, and so that's kind of how I, that, that point was when I, when I made that career shift to, to really find ways to bring business and sustainability together in, in, in a company that can uh, create positive impact. Yeah, it's, it, that's the powerful part of business is that it, it does have a lot of leverage on the, the policy. So was that, was that a, what you could see when you were in Washington, like with the, the companies lobbying for stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I was that 20 something kid in an ill fitting suit, like going and, uh, and getting, you know, having meetings with congressional aides and others. And then, um, you know, you'd see the, the big petrochemical companies throwing, you know, dollars around and, and typically getting what they want. And, you know, all the attention today to the climate crisis, um, we were trying to work on that issue 20 years ago in DC and, um, and just getting nowhere because uh, it was, you know, it was hard to articulate and show. And also, you know, we were just up against this uh, way better run and more better funded uh, group of companies. So I think that that was uh, really, yeah, I mean, it showed me a lot of, of the challenges. And, and, you know, the other thing that would happen is that you'd spend all this energy to get something passed and then, you know, Congress would change hands and just repeal it the next year. Like, what? <laughs> what do we just do? You know, like it was so hard to make forward momentum through government. Uh, it shouldn't be that hard, uh, and I'm hopeful that uh, all you know some of this new awareness and appreciation for uh, some of the challenges we have will start to change that reality. And government can be a force for good. But at the end of the day, if, if the big corporations are not your ally, it's hard. 
momentum. And, um, and I think what we're proving on so many issues is that companies are doing well by doing good to use that sort of, um, you know, that saying, and, and I think are becoming this sort of progressive voice addressing issues and, and ultimately by building profitable businesses around sustainability, you, you know, you're going to have much more permanent, uh, impact. And so it's been fun to be able to work on it from that side now too. What was your mindset like when you were coming out of your MBA, what kind of opportunities were you looking for at that point? Well, um, you know, what's been really encouraging, I think, is the difference between what that looks like for MBA graduates today versus what it looked like for me, what was that, 16 years ago now? Um, because at that time, it was still, you know, I was participating in this group called Net Impact. I was one of the, you know, leaders of our local chapter during my MBA program. And I used to joke that it was the MBA group of the group of MBAs who pretend like they care about the environment, you know, it was like still very much a fringe thing. And, uh, you know, the whole stakeholder value and what your focus had to be as a company. I mean, the mindset was still like, yeah, 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 that's all good. But like, how are you making money? Um, and so though companies were starting to add sustainability teams at that time, and you were starting to see some progressive companies building that sort of mindset and capability, it was very fringe. It's way less so now, which is really exciting, not just because those teams have gotten bigger and larger companies, but also I think they've driven down that, um, that uh, the ability to and, and desire to focus on those issues down to the operating teams more broadly, rather than having to be some specialist group that's just creating an annual report every year. Um, so it's very different. But at that time, yeah, we were sort of a small, weird group of, of people who, uh, uh, didn't necessarily feel like uh, our interests were validated by the companies we were trying to be recruited by and the, you know, the institution that we were, we were living in. So in one of your previous experiences, you were working with electronic waste, primarily with cell phones. What was, was that before they were smartphones? They were still cell phones? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one of the yes, I was there through that whole transition. I mean, one of the the one of the big seminal events while I was at that company, uh, I was at that company for eight years, and you know, we I saw it grow from uh, sixty employees to like over four hundred, and we were handling four hundred thousand or more use phones a month. Um, you know, for running the programs for like AT and T and Walmart and Best Buy and all all, all those companies. Uh, when the Razor phone from Motorola came out, that was sort of this huge uh, moment in the industry uh, that kind of turned everything on its side. And then just as I was starting to transition out is when, you know, first Blackberries and then, you know, the very first iPhones were released. So um, it had a really big impact on that industry. Um, so mostly because you went from, you know, younger listeners may not remember, but there was at that time, there were literally hundreds of models of phones. And um, so you had this huge, uh, this is a, you know, the, the process of knowing what each phone was and how to refurbish it and find new markets for it was really challenging. Now you have such a, so, so few phones that that is a, it's a very different kind of a marketplace, but that, that was a really, that was a really important learning experience for me um, pulling back from just the, the, the e-waste part of it, because uh, it touched on so many things that are relevant to what I'm doing now, which is circularity. How do you 
How do you motivate and create effective systems for end of life for consumers? How do you partner with large corporations who have complicated needs and interests and how these programs are built and managed and what are the economics around it? You know, it really touches on everything that kind of drives circularity today. And um, some things we did really well and some we never quite figured out and and still, I don't know, have been figured out. So um, it's exciting to be a part of it, to see the growth, to learn about how to, how to make it work, but also uh, show just how much work is left to do. How did you uh, be, how did you make your way to fraternity? Well, so I, um, I, after I left Recellular, that, uh, the cell phone reuse recycling company, um, I was sort of building startups, consulting with startups, and then uh, uh, an investor in fraternity asked me um, if I was interested in helping the founder and uh, consulting a little bit. And, um, and so that's that connection I had to one of the investors is what, you know, he thought of me because of that background I had in working with large companies, dealing with reverse logistics and supply chain and all these sort of uh, components of what ultimately fraternity also is um, involved in. And so I started doing some consulting and then, and then, um, was, uh, there was a transition towards me, you know, the opportunity for me to become the CEO, uh, a couple of years ago in 2017. So initially it was doing consulting and then transitioning through, um, as, as sort of part of the investor groups, uh, exploration to how to, how to take this initial idea and actually build a business around it, which, uh, is been, you know, it's its own unique challenge. Right. So when you came in, the technology was developed and, and, proven and now they you needed to find a market for it is that how it worked uh to an extent i mean the, the company originally was incubated out of a reusable shopping bag business and that business was making uh reusable shopping bags for a lot of companies you know branded bags that they could give out at trade shows and things like that and one of their customers at the time was thread up um and james reinhardt is the ceo and he was buying these reusable shopping bags and he asked Mitch, the founder, if he a fraternity, if he could make them a reasonable shipping bag, and um, that he said, I don't know, but let me try, <laughs> and that sort of started him down this rabbit hole. And James liked it enough that he invested, and he brought in um, Brian Spaley, who was the Bonobos co-founder of Trunk Club, and um, and he invested, and then you know some other e-commerce guys got involved, and you know it was uh, that was over five years ago now. And I was brought in two years ago. And then now I like to say, you know, we've been around long enough to be an overnight success. So the early years were a lot of figuring out how, just how to make it. I mean, we're still, you know, constantly tweaking and improving, but um, part of the problem was getting the product right. And then, but the bigger problem was getting the, the market approach right and understanding who our customers could be and, and why we created value for them. And then, you know, frankly, we've just gotten lucky of late because all these trend lines sort of are meeting where we happen to have been sitting for five years, which is circularity and focus on single use plastics and this huge growth in e-commerce and um, the whole rental market for apparel. And like all those things have just sort of met where we're sitting and I'm happy to be lucky. Um, But it took a long time to get smart and then also to get lucky. (laughs) So five years. Yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that market approach because you have multiple your your customer is not necessarily your end user and you That's have right. to a lot of your customers right. are large and need and have a lot of touch points and a lot of 
complicated supply chains. How would you recommend someone who's starting a circular business approaches a large company to to figure out if they could possibly work uh, in parallel at some point? Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, that is sort of the critical thing. You know, for us, it was really understanding that the least important part of what we do is the product. And that might seem counterintuitive. And most people, when they're starting companies like this, get really excited because they built this really cool reusable cup or, you know, something, whatever it is, whatever the tangible asset is. Um, in actuality, like none of that matters if there is an underlying system that makes it cost effective and justifiable. So um, when we get inbound leads through our website, almost, I mean, literally we get them daily and probably every week it's some huge brand name that's like reaching out to us because they want to talk. And that's exciting. And it shows that people are really interested in, in what we're doing and, and, and impacting waste in general. But if you don't have a circular system in place or the ability to create a circular system, then the economics of switching to circular products are not going to make sense. So nobody should be, you know, if you're a standard e-commerce company and you're shipping somebody a product in a 50 cent cardboard box and you don't, it's not rental. So you're going to get some returns, maybe 20, 30%. But you know, most of the time people are just keeping the product. They're breaking down that box and recycling it locally for them to now spend two, three, four dollars to have an empty box shipped back to them is like not make sense financially. So I'm replacing a 50 cent box with a reusable that I spend two, three, four dollars to get back every time. Like now I'm adding so much cost to my e-commerce worker. So for us to make a really effective, cool box that like ships out, even if it like folds up small and like and comes back as cheap as possible, the system isn't there that supports it financially. And so trying to bang your head against that wall and say like, no, switch our box, it's really cool. If you don't appreciate that the underlying system has to be, you know, make sense and there has to be a business case from first on the system and then how the product integrates to it, you're not going to scale up. So that was our most important learning is to understand when are companies able to, when, when is there a system that, that makes, um, a circular uh, product like our shipping packaging cost effective. And if there isn't, how can we enable that system to be in place? Because if there isn't a system, there isn't a solution. And that, that's been like, frankly, the most important thing for us in, in the five years. And certainly since I, since I was brought in two years ago is to really know that we have to start with systems and then build products rather than the other way. And do you help your prospective customers Build those systems? Has that been a big part of it? That is, uh, that is where we've been adding capacity and growing, for sure. So the first step was to say, we're only going to focus on companies who have an, an, a system in place that already supports um, using reusables. And that's, you know, like I said, we're lucky. I mean, you know, to have somebody like Rent the Runway or, you know, tuxedo rental companies or, or firms like that who've been growing so much be our sort of anchor customers is allowed us to actually, okay, now we have a viable business here. So we can like, you know, actually like make payroll off of revenue rather than investor dollars, like these sort of like seemingly impossible things that are finally, <laughs> we're, we finally achieved. Like, so that, that model of, of company and their growth is enabled us to, to set our base of business. And that's exciting for us. Um, and they're great partners. They're a tiny percent of the overall packaging world. Um, and so 
that has allowed us to now start working towards how do we create systems? You know, we're working on a project with DHL right now for a consumer packaged goods company that ships you, you know, their products. And then that's the end of the relationship. We've helped them build this circular system now through DHL that makes it cost effective to service, a, you know, a chunk of their customers with the reusables. Um, but it's only because of that tight integration with the shipper and, and the packaging model and how all those pieces fit together. So that's where our future is. That's where we're going to go from being this, um, you know, niche little uh, feel good story uh, that uh, is an, it's not it's not bad. Like, I'm happy to have gotten to that place. But that's how we're, you know, we're on the, you know, I think we're on the precipice of really seeing fundamental changes because, we're able to integrate and bring together third, you know, all these groups to make that circular system effective. Yeah. It sounds like partnerships are really the driving force of building circular companies because it's not the norm yet. And in a, you can be your own thing and have it really closed system and think that you're great, but it doesn't, if it doesn't work with the existing system around it, then it's never going to be able to affect anything. Yeah, that's right. And um, at the end of the day, I think that for people who are looking at this space and, and have an interest in building companies and, and folks on circularity, there really is, you know, I think of a sort of a, a gut check kind of question that you need to ask yourself, which is, are you in it for the PR or are you in it to build something that's sustainable and scalable? And there are examples of companies out there that have done a really good job of enabling uh, large corporations to have a press release about what they're doing circularity-wise, um, but it's built off of marketing dollars, and it's, it is about the press release. Uh, and that's just not our, you know, our focus is, yeah, I call it this, like, there's this, like, trap that, that really smart companies get into all the time, which is this, just, frankly, magic thinking about circularity. You know, they... They spend all this time and money and expertise on building great products and great brands and great, you know, uh, uh, platforms for engaging with customers. And then they just want to do a thing on the environment. And then they sort of throw all that rigor and starts out the window and just say, yeah, let's go do that thing. And if you don't apply that same rigor to sustainability and circularity, at the end of the day, it's going to be about PR. And so, you know, my... For me, with returning, like I just not—that's not what interests me. I'm not interested in getting somebody to write me a fifty thousand dollars check so they can use some reasonable packaging for some special program for a month and write a press release, uh, and it costs them all this extra money because the underlying system isn't there. But they got to have the press release. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're really going to have sustained and lasting impact, you need to understand business fundamentals first. You need to focus on the system, as I said, and then grow from there. And so that, to me, is you know, sort of that gating question for, for entrepreneurs or others who are looking at this is if you want to grow through something, you, you have to apply real business rigor. You have to think about who is going to be at the table. Packaging is uh, really complicated because it touches every stakeholder group internally and externally. Like if I were to pick something out of a hat, <laughs> frankly, it would not be packaging for that reason. You know, it's like uh, really hard. But then once you're through the gate, that actually becomes a competitive advantage because it's really hard to replace you because that next company has to go and get every stakeholder group uh, lined up and approving and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was, a, you know, it's a bit of a meandering answer other than to say, 
it's you have to apply you can't just use magic thinking and because it's sustainable it's going to win it won't unless it also touches on all those business fundamentals and almost certainly that's going to require integration with a lot of different kinds of of uh companies and and stakeholder groups and and uh you, you should be ready for that yeah absolutely you've yeah so Returnity's got a very impressive uh, advisory board and, and group of investors. And it's interesting too, because you've got uh, advisors who are, who are part of the e-commerce revolution and, and we're, we're a big part of bringing it to the scale it is at right now. But then you've also got people who are work with the incumbents, like the people who are trying to figure out how to turn their business model from a physical retail into a digital, into a digital uh, offering. So what kind of, um, I guess I've got a couple questions. I'll start with what makes for a good, uh, what, what should you be looking for in an advisor as you begin your, your journey into a circular business? Well, I think there's two kinds of advisors. Ultimately, there's the kind that's going to be active with you and in, in sort of offering uh, advice and opening up, you know, making introductions and like opening up opportunities for you. Uh, so there's sort of an active, uh, advisor. And then there's, there's what I would call as sort of a, um, uh, uh, a, uh, press release advisor. Like, you know, sometimes somebody who's not going to be available to you and isn't really doing much to move your company forward, but you can put on your press release as an advisor. That's not always bad either. So, um, you know, I think, knowing going in what they're going to be for you. Like are there somebody who's list is like, Oh, well that person's involved and that somehow is going to, you know, help validate what you're doing with others. You know, it's better to have active engaged people who can move, you know, give you good advice and make introductions. But even if it's just a, someone with a name who can help validate, that's not terrible either. And if you're a trend, if you're open eyes about what that person is going to do up front, then great. Right. Like it's okay. Uh, and frankly, you know, we have some of those who I think are, um, either too busy and, and, and really are just too busy to, you know, to be active and that's okay. You know, maybe I talk to them once a year and, uh, they've helped with some intros or whatever. So fine. We know what our relationship is. So I think sort of knowing that up front is important. Um, I also think that you, that it's really important to have balance. Um, you can get, there's, you know, you can get caught up in having too many advisor conversations and relying on that too much. You know, you're the one who's going to know your business and your market best ultimately because you're working it every day. And so I think finding that right balance as well, like you don't want to have too many advisors. You don't want to go to them too much, not because you're going to overload them, but more because you're going to overload yourself. It's, you know, startups in particular are always about just making the best bet you can. Um, you don't usually know what's going to work. You don't know which market or which segment's going to be the best. You don't know when a contract's going to hit or not. You don't know if you're going to raise that next round or any round. Uh, it's all about this uncertainty. You have to just take educated bets. And if you spend too much time talking to advisors and get too many opinions, you, you might just like lose your gut. And your gut as an entrepreneur is really the most important thing. And they can't replace that. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, investment as well what would make for a a good investor relation because you don't necessarily want someone who's out and has never thought of packaging to be an investor but it is attractive that they have money is there a balance there yeah i mean 
It yes, and I think to me the thing I've learned the hard way through a number of startups is just how impactful who you raise money from and how you raise it is on what your company can be in the future. And so when you know raising money is very hard, both. I mean, it's just hard to find people to say yes. It takes a ton of time. It's emotionally, like psychologically, it's just like very difficult. You know, you're going to get rejected a lot. You're going to be told, just go do this thing and then come back. And you're going to say, yeah, but I don't have any money to do that thing. That's why I'm talking to you. Like, that's not very helpful. Thank you. Um, so it's all hard. But the problem is that, and startups are, you know, fail a lot, of course, for all those, all those reasons. But if you raise money the wrong way, it can really, it really impacts the out, what success can look like for you and your company. And so if you're looking to build, you know, a Silicon Valley rocket ship, you may say, yeah, let's go raise a bunch of convertible debt and like be on this like trajectory of up or out and then we're dead. But if you were trying to build something that's just can be growing slow and can be a lifestyle business and like, if it takes off, that's fine, but I'm not trying to like, you know, write a lottery ticket with this thing, then VC money is the wrong way to go. And if you raise money from them, they don't care if you're like stable and profitable, if you're not growing like crazy and, and you're going to like see your company taken away from you because of how you found money early days. So it's, it's all hard. You know, I, I, I when I, I love entrepreneurs in part because I recognize they have the same sort of mental defect that I seem to have <laughs> wanting to try in the first place. And that's sort of encouraging. Um, but fundraising, you can't, you know, you can't build a, a company without funds, but you also just have to be, I think, really disciplined about how you raise money and not have it be out of a, whether, you know, the individual or the institution, whoever it is who's participating, they need to be, the process and the people have to be aligned with what your vision is. And if they're not, taking their money can, you know, is just a recipe for problems later on because they're going to be disappointed. They're going to lock you into choices you don't want to make. So it's, you know, on top of being hard anyways, it's even harder because you, you just have to be really conscientious of what happens two, three, four years down the road. And raising money is not, it's not required. It, ideally, you're able to kind of get things going right away. And so I just find it very interesting to, to hear from those who, have because it it's something that seems it's very glamorized in a lot of the startup publications and it's just kind of assumed that it's a way of doing it but it's not the only way of doing it so i just wanted to hear a little bit of the backstory of what to what are some pitfalls to look for um changing gears a little bit you did talk about the when you have advisors and you have people around you you need to be good at listening to what they're saying but also knowing what you need to do to move forward because they've just heard they've been talking to you for half an hour and they think they know your business inside and out but you've been doing it for three years and you 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 actually know the business inside out so it's all it's just as much it's just as important the things you pursue as the things you don't pursue so what are what are some opportunities that Returnly's had over the last let's just say 12 months that you've said no to well, we get like, uh, it's funny, I can almost, uh, maybe I, maybe it's because they're setting their calendar to it, but I get consistent inbound interest from the meal kit companies mm. <laughs> who, who are beat up aggressively by their customers over the just incredible amount of single use packaging that's, you know, required for shipping these meal kits to customers. 
And their customers hate it and the clients hate it. Like everybody hates it and they just want us to create a reusable footer. And three years ago, before I really came on board, um, we had had extensive conversations with a couple of them. And inevitably, um, coming back to what I was saying earlier, there just wasn't a system for it. Like we, we showed them, look, we could make you reusable packaging for meal kits, but the problem is you have to get it back and you have to clean it and sterilize it. And like, there's a lot of cost in that. And who's going to pay for it? And like, well, yeah, there's no money for that. So it's a big market. They have real problems. I know how we could solve it for them. And I just keep having to like not chase that shiny object and say no, because until they're prepared to really invest in building the system behind it, I know it's not going to work. And um, so I, I've had to do, I've had to do that. And then similarly, we get so many in, inbound in leads from startups, pre-release startups who are building business models around circularity, which is great, but then they may only need like 50 or hundred boxes or mailer bags right now. And I just can't make money servicing them. And so I've had to like, our t- I just hate turning away people for focusing on circularity and building startups. And it's actually been my team who's been like, Mike, we can't like, we can't do that and then not like provide rent the runway great service. Like, and that's the problem is that for us as a small team is like, we also can't do everything. And so I've had to get more aggressive about saying no to companies who just don't have the capacity right now to like be a profitable customer for us, um, which kind of breaks my heart. But uh, ultimately it's, it's best for us. And, and in the long term, we'll be best for them because then we'll, we'll have the structure to, to serve the small clients. And then so so getting to the part of saying yes and the, the clients you do choose to bring on, you mentioned Rental Runway as one of your clients. Like they're, they're massive and they're doing uh, really amazing stuff. What does that relationship look like now when they say we've, we're thinking of doing a new product or a new model or, or I don't know what they would be thinking about? What does that relationship look like in terms of you, bring, you being part of the, the logistics of it? Yeah, I mean, I think that for anybody who's looking at, at switching, you know, they've got uh, any company of with scale is going to have a lot of expertise around um, supply chain and purchasing and working with their logistics providers and, and, you know, branding and all those things. And then that kind of all gets thrown out the window when you're making a switch to reusable. And so we've just had to be, you know, I wish that I didn't have like eight to 12 month sales cycles. Um it's hard from a cash flow standpoint and it's like, it can be dispiriting. But at the end of the day, we've just learned that like for companies to make a switch, you have to be ready to hold their hand through a really long onboarding process because it's a huge change. And so it typically, even for someone like Rent the Runway, who's been doing this, I mean, they've been a real pioneer and, and deserve a ton of credit because they, they did this all in house originally and, and really had a lot of sort of vision on that front. But um, they don't work on these problems every day like we do. So all the little technical things and how to, you know, how to do security and labeling and, uh, you know, manufacturing and all those things, because it's a, it's a unique item. You know, we just have to hold everyone's hand, like needs assessment, do digital renderings, make one-off prototypes, let them kick that around for two weeks, then make them 50 samples that they'll ship just, you know, internally. And that's now you're like three months in, then they'll say, okay, let's, we're close enough. Let's make, 200 and we'll do actual customer shipments. Okay. That's going to take another two to three months to produce them and do all that. And now you're six months. Like that 
is the correct process at the end. And we just have to be patient and be supportive and treat it almost like we're consultants to them um, and not rush the process because you want what comes out of the other end to be something that is perfect for them. They know how it's going to work. They know how their customers are going to react. And um, so even if it's somebody like Rent the Runway who's been doing this for years or it's somebody new who's just building you know, a circular component to their business or wants to integrate it, it's in essence, it's always the same. It's like, we have to be the subject matter experts. We have to hold their hand. We have to be patient. Uh, we have to be able to be, be patient. <laughs> and, um, and that's not been easy, but now it's, you know, it's allowed us to be you know much more effective. Yeah. That's um, on the idea of, of the opportunities that have come up. Uh, you mentioned that, You've been working. I really like the saying you said about uh, being an overnight success. We've been in it long enough to be an overnight success because that's the truth is any company that all of a sudden you hear about on the news has likely been around for a little bit in order to get the wheels going. So setting a course and then staying with it for a while is the best way to get opportunities that come at you because you've chosen your course. And if people want to get on board, great, we're already set up for you. So the idea of e-commerce taking off and then waste all of a sudden becoming in the public eye is something that consumers are now demanding. What, what other um, behavior changes are you seeing in the e-commerce space that are exciting to you? Well, I think one is, so to me, what's I think really interesting is last mile delivery capacity is a huge problem right now in the industry. Mm -hmm. And what that's enabling, I think, is a, just a fresh set of eyes around, in totality, around what that experience is and how the industry can address that capacity crunch in, in, in new ways. So whether it's like UPS delivering stuff by drone, which, you know, they just got approval of to do nationwide under certain restrictions, um, or lockers or, you know, like our client happy returns, which is setting up these like local return bars for e-commerce, uh, returns. You know, there's so many innovative new ways that are, I think, addressing last mile, you know, e-commerce exploded. Then all of a sudden it's like that, got, you know, the problems of that all of a sudden started to appear because there's not enough capacity to deliver to people's homes. And then now we got to innovate new models. So that's creating all these new opportunities for us because companies, are building new systems, looking at it with fresh eyes, and then that creates an opportunity for them to also be considering circularity and reusables. Um, but, the, you know, the other thing I think is that the success of Rent the Runway and others has also started to push into new product categories. So, you know, we're working with a number of furniture rental companies now, we're looking, we're talking to a company about um, home, like just home goods, like cookware and creating circular systems around that. Um, we're working with some wine subscription companies around, like, I think everybody's sort of mapping now and saying, well, if it can work in apparel, how can it work in other product categories? And um, again, like, I'm happy to be lucky <laughs> and, and, and just happen to be where we're at as that's coming along. But I think those are two things that are driving a lot of innovation opportunity for us um, that, you know, didn't start from packaging. They started from other places, but then packaging becomes sort of an enabler and, and, and to an extent a requirement if you're going to make those new models work. 
Yeah, it's going to be a really exciting next few years as as probably every single product category goes online and they have to figure out how to get it to people's doorsteps. Yeah, and you know, and like DHL is, I mean, I, I like giving them credit because they, you know, they're I think the first who's really said, you know, in general, the shipping companies are the ones who make or break these programs because they can either be enablers or they can, you know, I mean, like the head of FedEx's packaging lab was asking our help to figure out how to get FedEx to not as an organization automatically penalize the use of reusable shipping packaging because they have they've had this like decades long clause in their sales contract that's like if it's not cardboard you get a fee applied. And he's like that's because people literally put shipping labels on tires. <laughs> and then like we had to like figure out well how could we like we can't just ship tires. So like what do we do there? But he's like your stuff is different, right? Like it clearly is different, but we we have just this in like ingrained approach. So the shippers have to be an ally. They can't be an adversary. And DHL is like the, and the shippers hate returns. Well, e-commerce, guess what? There's a lot of returns in e-commerce. They don't like it because it's, it's unplanned. And like, there's just all these, like, you know, it's one at a time. It's just like annoying for them. But DHL is the first one who said, look, we're going to create opportunity around this. Like we're going to close the loop proactively and bring this full loop system to our customer and say, we know you care a lot about packaging waste, single use, uh, recyclability, and so forth. We're gonna we're gonna do the delivery and we're gonna collect them up for return and we're gonna price it in a way that makes it really easy for you and attractive. Like that to me is like an ex- really exciting development because now the shipper who is that you know absolutely critical uh, connector between the company and the consumer is starting to say, how do we build uh, proactive business opportunities for ourselves by building, you know, circularity rather than fighting it or requiring the brand to like push us there. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of change and a lot of evolution. And I think um, it's going to be really fun to see how all those things intersect. Yeah. And you're in a great spot to it, to see it all from the ground floor and watch everything around you just get so turned around. Well, it seems like a really great, uh, great spot to wrap up here, Mike. Um, Some awesome insight for anyone who's got either an e-commerce business or are in, or involved in the supply chain because I some listeners might be thinking I just have an obsession with the supply chain because the last couple of guests have all had that that kind of background but it's because it's so new to me and like it's a very it's a very hidden part of the economy and but it is in a lot of ways the only way the economy works so thanks so much for sharing I got one more question for you around what kind of advice you would give yourself 20 years ago? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, so, so many things. Um, I, I think the main, the biggest thing for me is to know was, is I, I needed to do better at accepting defeat. And what I mean by that, and that's probably, that's pro- it's a lesson that now I try and share with other, uh, you, you know, younger entrepreneurs is that, um, you put so much energy, it's your baby. You like, you, you want it to succeed for so many reasons. It was your idea. Maybe you've got investor money on the line. Like it's the, my, I've had plenty of startups not work. And I think I dragged it on way too long as a sense of obligation to the team, to the investors, to myself to just try. And I think the, the I could have saved a lot of time and heartache by having a little bit more introspection around when things weren't working. And so I mean, all that formed where I am today. Um, 
which is both, you know, lucky and also finally, you know, finally building something that, you know, I feel like is, is hit, hit traction in a way that it's really gratifying, but, um, I probably could have learned that lesson a little bit faster. <laughs> but you learned. That's how it goes. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. This has been a great conversation, and I really look forward to seeing how uh, things evolve over the next few years. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Bye. That's all we got for today. But be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast so that you get to see exactly when the next episode is released. The rating also really helps other people to see this podcast so we can bring the circular economy to even more. Reach out to me on Twitter at S-T-E-W underscore H-I-L-L-H-O-U-S-E. That's at Stu underscore Hillhouse to suggest more guests for other episodes or just to reach out and say hi. See you next week, and thanks for listening.